0: So this morning we're continuing to talk about the ascension. And as we said, the Son of God assumed our humanity. And when I say the Son of God assumed our humanity, what is the term we use for that? The incarnation. And what is the verse which announces the incarnation? Many do, but what verse am I thinking of when the Son of Man assumes our humanity, when the Word of God took on flesh? What verse am I thinking of? John chapter 1, verse what? 14. Highly, highly, highly significant verse. And the Word became flesh and what? Dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we beheld His, see the Word, His glory, that glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, your translation may be a little different, but I just kind of remember King James better than I do others. And so, Christ accomplished our redemption. How? He accomplished it on the basis of His righteous obedience to the Father's will. This is the basis of our salvation. The basis of our salvation is that Jesus died a death according to the will of God, that he was obedient even unto death. What verse did I just quote? Philippians what? 8, 2-8. Eight. He was obedient even unto death. And this is what, remember, Jesus says in John uh, chapter 8, verse 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. And so the, <clears throat> the basis of our salvation is this. The Son of God took to Himself our humanity in the person of Jesus. That's why we call His name Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so the Son of God took to Himself our humanity in this man named Jesus. And in this man named Jesus this man lived a perfect life all the way to the cross, obeying God in absolutely every and any way. And as a result, was qualified to be the sin bearer because he had no sin in himself, Hebrews 4.15. Therefore, he was able to qualify, to take upon himself the sin of the world. Why? Because he did this as the God-man, that the Son of God in Christ, in Jesus, was experiencing in this man the payment of our sin. Not the experience of sinning, Jesus does not become a sinner. He does not become a co-participant with us in our sin, in our degradation, as some people teach. He is the sin-bearer, the one who carries the payment of the curse of sin, so that on His shoulders, this great shechem, this great burden-bearer, God has placed every single sin of every one of His people upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. So that when He declares in John 1930, what does he declare? It is finished. How many of our sins are completely and forever paid for as to the curse? How many? All of them. Colossians 2:13. First John one seven, all of them. So we've been talking about that, and as a result, Jesus reclaims God's original intention for His people. As a result of the cross, that which began in Genesis and was purposed in Genesis one and two is going to be fulfilled. Because of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, that which God began in Genesis 1 and 2 will be fulfilled. You have to go all the way back and pull it all together because God's Word and His work is a unified, comprehensive work. And so we will remember that God created. What happened? Why? We remember that God created Adam. And I know, I know I'm going over ground again. Again, but if you look at the Word of God, Paul in chapter 5, for instance, of Romans, goes over the same ground. He says this, and then he says it again this way, and he says it again this way, and he says it again this way. This is typical teaching. First Peter, 2 Peter 1, two, uh, one. I'm going to repeat, and I'm going to continue to repeat, because it's good for you to meet, for you for me to repeat. We remember that God created Adam in his image. Remember Genesis 1? Genesis 1 what? Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Genesis 1 what? 26. You must remember these references. God created Adam in his image and gave him kingly authority. Keep that in your mind. God gave Adam kingly authority to rule over and subdue the world or the earth so that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God from Habakkuk 2.14. God says in a people the glory of who I am, the glory of how I am, my character, will be set upon and will be displayed through a people, beginning with Adam and Eve, so that the entire world and the entire cosmos may see who I am through my people. And so this is done as God gives His rulership. Sorry, He shares His rulership, and He rules through His agent, Adam, upon the earth, so that Adam is given kingly authority. Remember that, underline that, kingly authority to rule and subdue the earth so that the name of the Lord is manifested around the world. And Adam's ability to rule over the earth is dependent upon one issue only. Adam can only Rule and exercise kingly authority as he is completely and absolutely and perfectly obedient to God's will as revealed in his word. Correct? Do we see that? That's why the obedience issue is central to Adam's ability to exercise kingly authority in such a way that finally the world remember the garden is in the midst of the world and outside the garden is the field and in some way humanity is to be growing and growing and expanding the garden of eden where the presence of god dwells visibly throughout the entire world so that this world may be the place of god's visible habitation in and among his people and through his people that's what genesis one and two is all about so what was Adam, why was Adam's obedience so important? In obeying God as Adam's representative, ruler, Adam was in effect declaring that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Remember how Psalm 24 begins? How does it begin? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And what does it say a few verses later? Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? he that hath clean hands and a pure heart who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity lift up your heads o ye gates and be ye lifted up ye everlasting doors and what and the king of glory shall come in who is the king of glory the lord or yahweh of hosts he is the king of glory and the ascension is the king of glory coming unto his throne in the person of this risen reigning and ruling and returning man, Jesus Christ. He is the king of glory. He's the one we're talking about and have been and always will be talking about. So in obeying God, <clears throat> Adam is both acknowledging and applying God's rule over the creation. In obedience to God, Adam is applying and, or acknowledging and applying God's rule over the creation. You remember in Luke 7, the centurion sees Jesus, and he says to Jesus, Lord, just command, say the word, and my servant back there in West Wego is going to be what? Healed. How does he know this? Because he says, I also am a man under authority. I see your authority. I see your authority. I also am a man under authority. You see, Jesus' authority is the result of God's anointing upon him to be the Messiah carried out through his obedience. It's not just he's the Son of God. He's the Son of God and the Son of Man anointed for this purpose, carrying it out in obedience to God's will. But you remember Adam, who was given kingly authority to rule over the heavens and the earth, disobeyed. Genesis 3, 6, the last three words of that verse say what? And he ate. There's the fall right there. At the end of Genesis 3, 6, there's the fall. Genesis 3, 6, the last three words, what? And he ate. Immediately, immediately. Everything was changed. By disobeying God in this act of disobedience, Adam willingly, the woman was deceived, not Adam. Adam willingly handed over his right to rule, his kingly authority to Satan. Who, as a result of Adam's disobedience, resulting in handing over his kingly rule over the earth, Satan gained the title that we read in Second Corinthians 4 4. The God of this world. In other words, God permitted Adam through his disobedience. To hand his kingly authority to Satan so that Satan, until God reclaims it, Satan now has kingly authority over the world. Do you see this? We talked about that last week. This is just a recapitulation of last week, which is typically how I would always be want to do, to go back and bring forward, go back and bring forward, to remind us. So now, how does Satan gain the authority over the world? He's given it. By whom? Adam, who was given kingly authority, but in his sin submitted to Satan. So what does that mean for us? Every time we sin, what are we saying? What are we saying with every sin? Satan, you're the king. Now, how many of us would dare to say this morning that Satan is king? That Satan is Lord. How many of us would dare to say that? And yet every time we sin, what do we say? How many of you know this tall man here? Fred, do you know him? What's his name? Who? Harlem. Harlem, is that what you said? Harley? Harlan, okay. Does everybody know Fred? What was I talking about? Every time we sin, now think about it. Every time we sin, see, we don't think of sin this way. Every time we sin, we turn away from bowing our knee to Christ, turn to Satan, and we bow down to him and worship him. Because every sin is an act of worship to Satan. Oh, I didn't think that, did I? Now that you put it that way, that makes a difference. It shouldn't. Do we get that? Every sinful attitude, every sinful desire, every sinful action, every sinful activity of relationship and fellowship, no matter what the reason, is turning our knee away from the Father and bowing down to Satan. Everyone. Now, that should sober us. Hopefully, it does. It sobers me. So, because of his perfect, I'm sorry, therefore, in order to reclaim God's rule upon the earth. Now, God could have gone, this is what the Father could have done. (coughs) But he doesn't do it this way. Because to do it, (coughs) we would never have experienced the grace of Jesus. So how does God reclaim His rule? In order to reclaim God's rule over the world, the Son of God must assume, sorry, the Son of God must assume, I'm sorry, the Son of God, what? Must assume our humanity. So that as a man... He will obey even unto death, Philippians 2.8, the Father's will, and thus earn the right, and thus merit, merit and earn the right to be given the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do we see that? A man through his demerit lost the rule. Another man through his merit must, what, regain the rule. Do we see that? So you see, Christianity is a matter of obedience and earning and merit, but all on the part of the Son of God as the Son of Man. Correct? Do we get that? We have to be careful how we think about this issue of merit and earning. As to us, no. As to him, what? Yes. Yes. Wow, that's just one page. <clears throat> as a result, as a result of what? As a result of I have come to do the Father's will, and I do it perfectly, and it is finished at the cross, and is raised, Jesus is raised three days later, thus God the Father proclaiming, this man has won the title. He has earned the title back from Satan. Satan because of his obedience so as a result jesus destroyed the works of the devil what did he do he he dethroned satan remember in john chapter 12 31 jesus the ruler of this world he calls him the ruler remember adam is to what rule the ruler of this world cometh but he has what Nothing in me. What do you mean he has nothing in you? What does that mean? He has no ability at all to charge me with any sin and thus lay the curse of death upon me because I am without sin. Correct? There's nothing in me. No ability to charge me at all. Secondly, he disarms Satan of the weapon of death. Remember? Satan has the weapon of death. Hebrews 2.14. He disarms Satan. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. He disarms him. As to the believer, Satan no longer has any authority whatsoever forever. As to the believer, Satan has no more authority forever and whatsoever. Can you say amen? But he does have power he does have power through temptation through the flesh through deception through fears and so how does he gain us or get us to sin through deception not through authority he has lost his authority over the believer i didn't say he's lost it over the world That won't happen until Jesus comes back. He still has absolute authority over unbelievers, 2 Timothy 2.26. They are in his control to do his will. Remember that? But for the believer, he's lost that. Why? Because it was wrenched from him by the Son of God. When Jesus says, it is finished, the authority of Satan was finished as to us. Finished. Now, as the ascended king of glory, the Lord Jesus will exercise his authority to confer on his people the reality of his atoning death as his victory over sin and Satan. Now he's ready to apply to us the good of that victory. And how does he do it? Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, God's royal king, will now act in his capacity as royal king to be God's prophet in sending himself. Listen to me. In sending himself to us by the Spirit. We must get that. It's not in giving us the Holy Spirit. That's the wrong way to say it. Because if that's the way we say it and leave it there, we believe that the Holy Spirit is the purpose of His coming. The Holy Spirit is God's instrument, is the person of God who brings to us this living divine man to us. So in sending the Spirit, the Lord Jesus is bringing or sending, if you would, Himself to us. Or giving, rather, Himself to us. How? By the agency of the Holy Spirit. We must keep in mind how God works. So why is giving the Holy Spirit so significant? Why is receiving the Holy Spirit so significant? Because without the giving or the receiving, we ain't God Christ. And what is this called? We talked about it last week a little bit. Our union in Christ. Our union in Christ. I'm going to just concentrate on this for the rest of the time this morning because this is what I believe the Holy Spirit gave me to concentrate on it. In fact, as I was doing this Wednesday and I had to writing it down and whatever, it came to a real strong thing. Nope, this is not it. This is wrong. Forget it. Go to something else. You know, and, you know just you know, go to something else. And so I was sharing that with Evan. to say, man, I'm really having a struggle. You know, doing classes like this is a struggle for me. And Evan and I started talking, and as you know, I'm a man of very few words. (laughs) And I find Evan to be more talkative than anybody else I know. So when Evan and I are together, he dominates the conversation. He won't let me talk. He just won't let me get a word in edgewise. And so he and I sharing, and out of my mouth comes the answer. And so I proceeded with this because I've just felt the Holy Spirit says, nope, You're right, Satan just was trying to confuse you and deceive you to go another way. Okay, let me just say this, and I think it's true for all of us. It is always a battle to hear from God and to proclaim His Word by the Holy Spirit. It's a battle. That's why you must always pray for your leaders. Not that they not enter the battle, ho oh, ho, but that they enter the battle in the might and the strength of God's Spirit to win the battle, amen, for the proclamation of Christ as Lord. So, what that really means is if you didn't like the class this morning, that's your fault. You see what I just set you up. Okay, <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> You see, we will remember the promise that Jesus made to the disciples after the the night of his betrayal. Remember that? Jesus began to emphasize something that he has kind of alluded to previously. John 14, 16, and 17. Remember John 13, 14, 15, and 16 are the, is the, uh, the dialogue and the activity of Jesus with the disciples before the, uh, the crucifixion. John 17 is Jesus' great high priestly prayer. And John 18 begins the arrest. You, you remember how all that works. John 14, we're in the middle of the dinner, the last supper. And Jesus says, I'm going to ask the Father, when? When? When, Billy? When he's sitting where? When will Jesus ask the Father? Come on, class. When he's sitting where? On the throne of God. Do you see it? Do we see this, Anton? When we read the Word, let us read it with the entire work of God in view, not just at that moment trying to figure out what in the world is Jesus talking about? I'm going to send the Father. So mount, when does he send the Father? When he's enthroned. Remember the example of Solomon. And Solomon sat on the throne of God over Israel. And as a result of the coronation of this man who was a type of the coronation of Christ, as a result of that, Solomon had the authority of God to begin to build the temple. And Jesus now, as the ascended Lord of glory, the heavenly man, has now God's authority to build the house of God or the temple of God, the church. Correct? And how does he do it? He begins and does it through one work, the Holy Spirit. I will ask the Father, write in your Bibles when you see that. When? When he's sitting on the throne. And he what? And he will give you. It's not like, well, maybe he will, maybe he won't. It really depends upon whether you receive Christ or not or whether you ask Jesus to come into your heart. And if you ask Jesus to come into your heart, then he will. That's then Jesus would have to say, then he will make provision for so that if you know, I'm going to ask the Father, As the ascended man. And when I ask, the Father will do as I ask. Why? Because I always do what is pleasing to him. I always do his will. Correct? Do we see that? I'm going to ask the Father. And he will. He will what? He will send you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. 1526. I will send to you from the Father... Do you see the whole Trinity, the Father's will, the Son's authority, and the Spirit's obedience to be sent? Just as the Father's will and the Son was obedient to be sent under the leading of the Holy Spirit. The Trinity in active in everything. I will send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth. Who proceeds from the Father, he will be bear witness of me. By the way, you must make sure you get those last verses. What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? He will bear witness about me. That is going to be the emphasis of the next several classes. This only purpose of the Holy Spirit the only purpose of the Holy Spirit was the same as the only purpose of the Son of God. What is that? John 15, 6 eight, 8, I think. I'm sorry, wait. Come on, old man. John fourteen nine. I think it is. Philip, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. What did Jesus come to do? He came to reveal the Father. And in revealing the Father, He not only revealed the Father's character, He revealed and implemented the Father's plan. See, Jesus' purpose certainly was to save us. But how? By revealing the Father. Do do we see it? Don't make Christianity about us. Don't make it person-centric. Make it Christus. Christocentric, theocentric, correct? And so the Son came to reveal the Father. Father, I have glorified your name. Glorify me now with the glory which we had in the beginning. Remember, I think it's John 17, 5. And so what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? Why is he given? To save you, to save you. Not primarily. He's given to reveal Jesus. Through your Salvation. Do we get it? Through your salvation. You see, salvation isn't about us. Salvation isn't about us. It's not from us. It's about whom? Adam? God. It's from whom, Adam? God. And it's about and is for from and for whom, Adam? God. And that's where the glory of God is. Where's the glory of God in Himself deposited in us residentially, but not intrinsically. It's intrinsic to God as His nature. It is given to us residentially to reflect His intrinsic nature, the glory of God. Then, before His final ascension, remember Jesus, before the He ascends into heaven for the last time. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. You have to be clothed with the Holy Spirit in order to manifest me. They have already received the Holy Spirit, John 20, verse 17. Remember, he breathed. He said, receive the Holy Spirit. he he, He breathed on them the Holy Spirit. But he says, now, wait for power. Wait for that time. When my name and my presence and I myself will begin to be declared in my people as the Holy Spirit brings my people into union with me, with me, Cody, me, Christ, James, me, Tommy, me. So why must Jesus send the Holy Spirit? In giving the Holy Spirit to us, Christ is inaugurating God's eternal purpose. Where do we find God's eternal purpose? Where? Genesis 1 and 2. Do we think of this way? Oh, we're beginning to think this way. In sending the Holy Spirit, God is going to enact a recreation, a new genesis, a re-genesis, a regeneration, a new generation, a new creation, a new people. He's going back to Genesis. Forgotten your name. What? Larry. It went out of me just like that, Janine. It just went out of me. Forget it. One time I forgot my own son-in-law's name. It's like, uh, so if I do that, just remind me who I am. Old man. In giving the Spirit, Christ is inaugurating God's eternal purpose as He began it in Genesis 1-2. And that purpose is realized how? In our union with Christ. This means that every blessing that God gives to us is a result of our eternal union with Christ. We have nothing from God. How much? I'm sorry, how much do we have? Nothing from God that is not in Christ, in our union with Christ. Everything we have from God, every blessing is where? In our union with Christ. So how does Ephesians 1, 3, how does Holy Spirit give it to Paul to start? Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, what, who has already, who has blessed us with how much? Every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenlies. now as we have already started that quote let's look at it even as he god chose us how in union with christ he chose us in jesus christ union with christ is the basis of our reason of the reason why god saves us by his son he chose us in christ when before the foundation of the world. We're going to have to talk really about what is called the covenant of redemption one day, so we'll get this a little better. But when did we get chosen by God? When were we put into union with Christ as far as the Father's will is concerned? When? It's always been. Nick, right? It's always been the Father's will. Always has been the Father's will that His people would be united to His Son. It didn't happen because I made a decision. It happened because God's decision to which I assented to say yes rather than my decision which caused or motivated God to come to me. God, from the beginning, had a people. So notice In verses 3 and 4, the preposition in describes location of our blessing. Where? Our blessings, where? In Christ, in our union with Christ. And this union is accomplished in verse 5, what? Through Jesus Christ. And by the way, how do we receive our union in Christ? How are we brought into the good of it by the Spirit? Through faith. Sorry, by faith. By faith. Sorry, we are saved by grace through faith. Dia, D I A is agree. We through the instrumentality of our yesing. Yesing. We are brought into the reality or the good of our union in Christ at particular moments in history. All of us could probably say, I was saved at this date. I was saved here. I was saved that time and that time. Why? That's just the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing each one of us into this eternal union in a time frame, which we'll begin to talk about next week in more detail. Ephesians 7 and 11, what is the result? In our union with Christ, we have redemption through the blood, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. As a result of our union in Christ, verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of of God who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. The word predestination is a hated word among many. The word predestination has to do with the means of God applying his eternal will. Come on. The word predestination has to do with how God applies His eternal will. So knowing that, how many of us can say, thank God for predestination? It's the way God applies our eternal will. Can you be saved today because God predestines you. What? Applies His eternal will to you and keeps you and calls you and brings you into Christ by the Spirit. That's called predestination. It's a good word. It's a good word. In our union with Christ, we inherit all that Christ himself has inherited as the obedient son. Did you get that? In our union with Christ, we inherit everything. Remember Psalm 2, 7 and 8? Yahweh says to the Lord, our Lord, what? I will give you what? The nations as your inheritance. Why the nations? Because Adam and Eve were to fulfill, uh, to uh, fill the earth, the nations, so that God's people would fill the earth through the progeny or the descendants of an obedient Adam and Eve. In the incarnation, all that was necessary for our union with Christ was fulfilled in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Did we get that? Everything that was necessary to fulfill God's will, in a time frame, was accomplished, John nineteen thirty, it is finished. Where? In the incarnation, in the conception, and all the way through to the very death and burial of Jesus, the resurrection being the proclamation, it is done, and God the Father has accepted it, and now it will be applied in the ascension of the Son of Man. None of this happens as to our reality until Jesus sits on the throne and sends the Spirit. That's why ascension is so critical, as critical as every other aspect of the life of Christ. Then in his ascension as the king of glory, remember? Psalm 2410, the king of glory. In the ascension as the king of glory, Jesus now bestows all of his finished work upon us by sending the Holy Spirit to bring us into our union with Christ by faith. I just quoted Ephesians 2.8 to you, but differently. (laughs) We see how the word comes together. Therefore, in our union with Christ, the Spirit brings us into fellowship with the Father on the basis of Christ's own fellowship with God. I must repeat that. I must repeat it. Do you have that in your notes? We are not brought into the fellowship of God because of our faith. We are not brought into fellowship with God because of our faith we're brought into fellowship with God on the basis of Christ's obedient life and death and resurrection. Can we get that? Faith is not the reason we are brought into God. Faith is the reception of that work of our being brought into God, a union with Christ. Do we get that? It's critical. We get these things confused and we begin to think that it is faith that does this. It is Christ who does this. Christ who does it. Received by faith. In our union with Christ, the Spirit brings us into the fellowship, into fellowship with the Father on the basis of Christ's own fellowship with God. 2 Peter 1, 4, we have become What? partakers of the divine nature. Keep that verse in mind. It is critical when we get to talk about Romans eight twenty nine. In our union with Christ, the Holy Spirit pours into our hearts the very love that the Father has for the Son. In our union with Christ, God's eternal will for us is guaranteed as accomplished at the cross and applied by the Spirit In our union with Christ, God's eternal will is guaranteed as accomplished. It is finished at the cross and applied by the Spirit. I have a quote here from 1 Peter you might want to read. Look at these words. I'll let you read it on your own. Look at the words, strong words, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept by God's power, guaranteed or guarded through faith by the Spirit of God this is not something that is frivolous and something you can get into and get out of according to your will come I can't hear you it's not something you get into nor do we get out of according to our will john 113 the holy spirit does this work you were sealed Ephesians 13:14 with the promised spirit remember the promise i'm going to send the promise of the father who is the guarantee, the what? The guarantee. When God guarantees something, honey child, what? It is guaranteed of our inheritance until we gain possession of it, until we, what, get to heaven and have the fullness. This is why Jesus could say, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing, none of them that he's given to me. You see, the strength of our union is in Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know, we know because of our union with Christ. Put it in your Bible. How do we know? Our union with Christ. What do we know? For we know that God, for we know that God, what? Works all things according to what? Sorry? For we know that God works all things according to His, Hmm purpose. Do we know the verse? For those who love Him and who are the called according to His will. And what is that will? Verse 29. What does verse 29 say? Somebody help me. For whom He what? For knew He what? Predestined. He caused to be what? Conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who is what? There's the rest of the verse there, who what? Are you following me? Somebody tell me what it says. Who is the firstborn of many brethren. Then what does verse 30 say? You see the link? It's continuing. For what does verse 30 say? How does it begin? For those whom he has what? Predestined he also called, right? And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, those who that we have been joined into the very glory of this heavenly risen man. Next week, we're going to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in joining us into union with Christ. Thank you.